Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In 2011, I was living in Miami, Florida, and I had a wedding of a good friend up here in Orlando. And so I had some obligations keeping me in Miami late until that night. And so I left Miami around 10 p.m., which you can imagine put me in pretty late here in Orlando. And as I was in kind of the final stretch of my drive, uh, I was coming down East Colonial, just the long way, right? All the way out from where 95 is. And, and I have a tendency when I'm a weary traveler to fall asleep at the wheel. I know, gasp, right? This is terrible. And so I know this about myself, which is the first line of defense. And so as I'm kind of beginning to feel my eyelids get heavy, I just, I know I got to do something. There's no gas stations. I don't have an energy drink, anything like that. So I decided I'm going to pull over on the shoulder, zero people as far as you can see, and I'm going to get out and I'm going to sprint like a 40-meter dash, 40-yard dash down the side of the road, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to sprint all the way back to my truck. Okay, so this is what I do. Get back in. I'm feeling my heart rate's up. I'm feeling a little bit more awoken, I guess. And I get in the car and I drive about a mile and I slam on the brakes because nothing less than a seven-foot alligator was walking across East Colonial. I kid you not, this is not a lie. And I just, it dawned on me, if I wasn't awake before, I was awake now. And I realized, what if I would have just driven another mile before I did my whole like sprint down the side of the road thing? I could have been eaten alive. But I tell you this because uh, you, like me, when you're a weary traveler, you might find yourself asleep at the wheel of life. Uh, we find ourselves weary pretty easily because we have this kind of restlessness that kind of fuels the tank of our lives, that drives us constantly and incessantly to where we have a hard time finding rest. Uh, one of my favorite people to read, philosopher named James K.A. Smith, wrote a book recently called On the Road with St. Augustine, and this is how he begins that book. He says this, it might be youth, it might be the reptilian impulses of a species with migration encoded in its DNA. It might be your inferiority complex or the boredom of small town claustrophobia or the exhibitionist streak you've never told anybody about. It might be the hungers of ancestors whose aspirations have sunk into your bones, pushing you to go. It might be loneliness. It might be your inexplicable attraction to bad boys or the still unknown thrill of transgression and the hope of feeling something. It might be the self-loathing that has always been so weirdly bound up with a spiritual yearning. It might be the search for a mother or a father or yourself. It might be greed or curiosity. It might be liberation or escape. It might be a million other reasons, but we all leave. We're all driven by this restlessness, want to get out and just be on the move. And hear me, you can wander around the globe without ever leaving your zip code. 
You can daydream all day long about being anywhere but here, thinking that that's going to be the antidote to your restless heart. I was in a meeting with a, a friend recently who's uh, not yet a believer in Jesus, and we were talking, and he was telling me about all these places he's gone and traveled and jobs he's taken and places he's going to go. And, and, and I just asked him this question. I said, hey, what, what's your destination? It's the kind of question that when I ask people that, they're like, ah, I forgot you're a therapist and a pastor. Why do I hang out with you? What's your destination? And he paused for a minute. He's like, well, you know, I'm just taking it three years at a time, just kind of doing my thing. And I was like, no, 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 but where are you going? Like, how do you know when you've found yourself at the end? He's like, I don't have that. I don't have that. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to help us diagnose what fuels this restless angst, this, we've got a word for this, it's called wanderlust, that we all experience. Um, the, the subtitle of that book I quoted earlier is A Real World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. That's what I'm after this morning. I want to offer you a real world spirituality for restless hearts. And we're going to do that by looking at Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, which is a beautiful and brief text. Um, and so I want to see uh, what does it look to find rest for our restlessness in, in four points. We're going to see Sabbath as stopping, Sabbath as blessing, Sabbath as holy, and Sabbath as rest. Okay, so Sabbath as stopping, blessing, holy, and rest. If you've got your worship guide or a Bible, go ahead and open up with me and look at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 1 now. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now this these words kind of summarize all that we've seen so far in our series in Genesis 1, right? That, that out of God's inexhaustible, his effortless power, he creates a world with inexhaustible riches. Uh, last week, Eric showed us how the work that God had in creating was one of forming and filling. And we see that in this verse right here. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, that's form, and all the host of them, that's fill. It's a summary statement to summarize all that's happened in Genesis 1 so far. But the text goes on in verse 2 and it says this, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now you may notice that the word Sabbath doesn't actually appear in our text anywhere, and yet it's in all four of my points. That's because the word that you see in verse 2 and 3 that says God rested from his work is the Hebrew word from which we get the word Sabbath. And so it's here even though it's not named Sabbath yet. And so why does this matter? Well, I want to ask the question, what does it mean that God rested? What does it mean for God to rest? Well, this word doesn't necessarily mean rest as in relax. It more means rest as in to stop, to cease and desist. And so that hasn't answered the question. Why did God need to stop? Why did he need to cease and desist? Um, my wife and her sister growing up used to argue and fight as only siblings can do, right? And, and they would often say, no, stop doing that. Stop it. Stop saying that, right? And, and to the point where their parents just said, you are not allowed to use the word stop anymore. And so what they said was, please discontinue what you are doing. 
The funny thing is they still say this to this day. They'll say that to each other. And so here's my question. Why did God discontinue what he was doing? We've kind of got two options. The first one is, is that God, like you, after a long day of working out in your yard on a July afternoon in Orlando, uh, was exhausted. He was tired. And so he kind of wiped the sweat off his brow, sat down in his lazy boy and drank a cold drink. The problem with that option is the Bible. Um, the Bible is really clear that God is effortless in his creative power. Even the way Genesis 1 talks about it is he says, and God said, and there was. Not much heavy lifting there. It's effortless for God to create this inexhaustibly rich world. So our second option is that when it says God rested, it means that God stopped to smell the roses. In other words, he paused, he stopped in order to delight in and contemplate the, quote, very goodness of the world he just got done creating. It's not that God was weary from cosmos crafting. It was that he stopped so he could take it all in and enjoy it. It's kind of like a painter who, right after she finishes her masterpiece, steps back in order to get a, a full glimpse of what she's done with this blank canvas. It's kind of like an attorney who, after they have been spending time uh, building a case against the defendant, the, the attorney stops and they say, the prosecution rests your honor. Does that mean that they're tired, that they're weary? Maybe they are, but that's not what they mean. They mean, I'm done. I'm finished building my case. Case is completed. Likewise, God Sabbath. He rested from his work. It's, it's almost like if you can imagine, um, God is sighing in satisfaction as he gazes out at his created world, as he sees the goodness and beauty of the world he's made. He sees the rolling green hills and the azure blue oceans and, and he can't help himself but grin as he looks at the sun as it preaches its warmth to the world and he, he gazes at the moon as he hangs it as the nightlight of the sky and God is very pleased with what he's done. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says God is satisfied that the world he has evoked in love is attuned to his purposes. God is satisfied. But let me remind you of a key part of the story. Do you remember that just yesterday, not literally yesterday, but in the story, just yesterday, God created humanity, day six. Now it's day seven and God rested. So what that means is, is that the very first day of human existence, the first sunrise a human being ever experienced was a day of rest. We're calling this series Origins because the origins of humanity says a lot to us about who we were made to be. And so it's amazing, it's, it's instructive for us that God creates human beings and invites them into a world that they're not beginning by working, they're beginning by resting in the work of God. And so on the seventh day, God rested. Now, this might be set in relief if you contrast it with uh, a, a story from another ancient Near Eastern culture, the Babylonians. In their creation epic called the Enuma Elish, this is, this is what happens. Um, the, similarly, the gods rest after they make humanity. 
but it's because they have humans to do their dirty work now. Basically, the gods are really happy because they don't have to get their hands dirty with the day-to-day maintenance of the world, and they can kind of sit back and relax and do some more administrative tasks. I mean, it literally says that they are free because now man, quote, is charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. The God of the Bible is fundamentally different from that. First of all, he doesn't need you to be at ease. There's a lot in that sentence. He didn't need you. He's self-contented in himself. He's full and abounding and abundant. You remember that quote? He made the world out of love, not out of necessity. And even more, it says that, like, can you just imagine the difference this makes in the vision of life? It says that God, three times in our text, that God worked. That his creative activity was work. And that's not some fancy Hebrew word. It's the same word for ordinary human labor. So not only is God distancing, not not distancing himself, he's not stepping back and saying, that's for you to do these menial tasks. I do my work over here. He's saying, I get my hands dirty and do the same work that you do. This is dignifying human work here. And he will, in the story, uh, the rest of Genesis chapter two, we're gonna see, he gets his hands in the mud when he makes Adam. That's not for nothing. God is not stained by his material world. He loves his material world. He spoke it into existence. But not only that, not only does God dignify our work, but he displays rest. And so as we look at this text, we see a God who works six days and rests one. And the question I have for you is, do you ever finish your work? Like, are you ever done to where you can just rest? Are you ever able to, as the text here says, rest from all the work that you have done? What if laden in the Sabbath was a blessing that you could only experience if you were to stop. And so I want to look at this. I want to look at how the Sabbath is a blessing. The Sabbath is a blessing. Look at verse 3 with me. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What does it mean that God blessed the seventh day? Well, if you've, been, if you've been closely reading or listening to the narrative so far, you know that God has blessed two other things in the story. He, he blessed the living creatures and he blessed the human creatures. In Genesis 1.22, it says, and God blessed the living creatures saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill. And in Genesis 1.28, it says, and God blessed the humans and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill. And so notice that God's blessing is followed by be fruitful and multiply and fill. It's because God's blessing is his life-giving abundance. And so when God blesses the Sabbath day, God is saying that he's making the Sabbath day full of life-giving abundance. Now it's kind of like how if God blesses land, it becomes fruitful bearing food. Or if, and you read the whole story of scripture, you see this time and time again, God blesses a barren womb and it becomes fruitful bearing children. This is this life-giving abundance that's inherent in the blessing of God. Another way to look at this is when I was in my 
counseling program, a professor, one of the things that I had to wrestle with was how do I counsel, how do I sit with and help people that have totally different views of the world than I do? Have very little in common, share very different value systems. What, what do I do when I get in there and, and, and try to help them? This is a real wrestling for a counselor who's a Christian and or a Christian counselor. And, and so in that scenario, my professor used to always say this. He would say, remember, creation is on your side. What did he mean by that? He meant that I'm sitting across from a human creature bearing the image of God no matter what they believe. And they live in a created cosmos created by the one true and living God no matter what they believe. And so if you, in general, live in grain with the way the universe was made, you'll experience more blessing than if you don't. In general, this is wisdom. And so this was helpful for me because it helped me see how the wisdom of creation is embedded in every human being. And hear me, it's embedded in the rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest. And if you don't observe that, you will experience it to your detriment because there's blessing in this rhythm of work and rest. So how do we share in the blessing of the Sabbath? We do what God did. We stop and we delight in his works of creation. We stop and we delight in his works of creation. One of the greatest creation poets of our time is a woman named Mary Oliver. And Mary Oliver says, he or she who loves God will look most deeply into his works. And she lived a life of doing that of looking deeply into, her work, into God's works and then telling us about it in her poetry. And so this is what I'm calling us to, is that, that we would pause, we would stop our work so that we could rest and observe and delight in God's work in creation. And so we might see its seas and rivers, its sunrises and sunsets, its mountains and its valleys, its harvests and its forests, its fruits and its flowers, its days and its nights, its seasons and its solstices, and we can stop and rest in the work of God. But it doesn't take long before we realize there's something missing in creation, that it's not enough, that this is not yet our home. It will be one day, but it's not now. But I want to tell you about a quick uh, study that was done, actually kind of on accident. Um, in the state prison of Southern Michigan in the 1970s, um, an architect named Ernest Moore studied some of the records of this prison, and he found something out. The way that the prison was designed is that some of the cells looked out at a farmland with rolling green hills and trees, and on the other side of the prison, it looked out on bare brick walls. And so he looked at the records of the prisoners and figured out where they stayed, which cells they had, and which side it was on. And this is what he found out. There was nothing different between these groups in any other way except for where their cell was located. If you were in the group that could see the natural world, the created order, you were 24% less likely to get physically or mentally sick. There is blessing in contemplating God's works in creation. But as I said, it's, it doesn't take long before we realize something is lacking. We're, we are not yet home. And so I want to invite you not only to, to delight and contemplate his works in creation, but also his work in salvation. That we would pause and we would contemplate God's mercy and his grace. 
the way in which he has humbled himself and, and, and experienced humiliation and exaltation, his patience and his providence, the way that he works to bring us to himself. Hear this, his work that precedes and prevents all of our work in saving ourselves, but also his work that enables and ennobles all of our work in sanctifying ourselves. This is what it means to stop and to take in God's work in creation and salvation. This is what it means to take in the blessing of Sabbath. As maybe the hardest working and most grace resting apostle, the apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we stop when we pause, when we contemplate God's works in creation and in salvation, we remember, we are reminded again and again that God finishes his work. We need that. And so Sabbath is a blessing when we stop working and gaze at God's working. But verse three goes on and it says this, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Holy. Let's look at the Sabbath as holy. Holy. God made the seventh day holy. This is the first time that the word holy is used in scripture. And if you've got any familiarity with the Bible, you know this is an important word. First time it shows up. More than any other word, the word holy gets at the majesty and the mystery of God. Some of us, when we hear the word holy, uh, it, it evokes fear in us. Others of us, it evokes fascination. Because there's something about holy that it speaks of our longing for transcendence and the terror we would have if we actually found it. It's what Psalm 2 says is that if you were to encounter holy, you would rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. That's the experience of being in the presence of holy. And so when God says the seventh day is holy, something exhilarating is happening here. And not even God himself has been called holy yet. Even though it's his chief characteristic, he is the holy one of Israel. And God has not called anything else that he's made thus far holy. He's called it good, even very good, but he's not called anything holy yet, except for the seventh day. The Jewish scholar, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who walked, who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. into Selma, arm in arm with him. And, and that he said of that day, I felt as if our feet were praying. He wrote a magnificent book called Sabbath. You can guess what it's about. And, and in that book, he basically says, hey, you know what? You look at other cultures, you look at other religions. It's not that hard to sanctify things. It's not that hard to make a holy place. You want a real challenge? Try sanctifying time. Only the God of Israel sanctifies time. And this is true. Sabbath is a distinct cultural contribution of the Jewish people to world history. This is a unique thing to the God of Israel that, that you, can, you can make a, a place holy all day long. Try making time holy. God alone can do that. And why I think this is significant is because this idea of Sabbath has been a form of social legislation that has set apart God's people, or you could say made them holy for millennia, for millennia. And I think it still has the power to do that today. In fact, I would go as far as to say that keeping Sabbath may be the most 
counterformative practice for this congregation right here. I'm just putting it out there. Why? Why might I say something like that? We live in a culture that has formed us, taught us, and we believe it whether we know it or not, that time is money. It's, it's seeped into the very language we use, right? Like, I spent some time reading a book the other day. You know, if you go this route on your way, you'll save some time. Man, that project, it cost me a lot of time. Because time is money. And so you hear me get up here and say, hey, keeping one day holy out of seven is a really good idea. And you think that keeping Sabbath would be a waste of time like having solar panels in Seattle would be a waste of money, right? Like you just, because time is money, whether you know it or not, you've been formed to believe that. And so God is calling us to sanctify our time. And, and I just I got to spend some time thinking about this for a little bit and and reflecting on it because I too experienced the desire and the need to hear the word capitalize on every moment. I know you do too. And so Andy Crouch, an author, says this, there is perhaps no single thing that could better help us recover Jesus' lordship in our frantic, power-hungry world than to allow him to be the lord of our rest as well as our work. The challenge is disarmingly simple. One day a week, not to do anything that we know to be work. If you're reading along with us in uh, community Bible reading in CBR, we just read 1 Peter 1, and in there it says, you shall be holy as I am holy. Because the Sabbath is holy, it counterforms us into a counterculture. You could say, to use the language of 1 Peter, a holy people. And so as I imagined us, I imagined what would it be like? What if New City was a restful people in a restless city? What if we could tangibly invite people into the rest of God and they actually saw it working out in our own lives? What would they see now? What if New City was a people whose status came from somewhere other than their work? What if New City was a people who didn't find their identity in answering the question, what do you do? Imagine the kind of counterculture, imagine the kind of holiness people might experience, and there's a hope in that holiness. And so listen, I know that it sounds absurd to give up advancing for one day out of seven but Chick-fil-A does it. And they crush every other, friend of mine who's a fast food, uh, who's a a Chick-fil-A owner operator would hate me for saying fast food right now, but they crush every other fast food company who's open seven days a week. I'm kidding, kind of. I'm not, I'm serious, but kidding, right? And, but I really do want you to take Sabbath keeping really seriously. And so I'm actually writing an article for The Connect coming out this Thursday. You can sign up on our website for The Connect if you don't get it. And I'm going to give you best practices and some resources because I know, hear me, I know there are some really good questions out there about what does this actually look like in my life? Like y'all could come up to me afterward and be like, hey, this is what's going on in my life. I got this, 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 this. What does Sabbath keeping look like? And we would have a conversation because it looks different. There's a norm. There's a a truth for all of us across the board, but it's going to work itself out differently in our different lives and situations. I want you to hear me say that. And so I'm just gonna give you some some best practices in the Connect article. But for now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tell you my own story of Sabbath keeping. 
Um, a, a few years ago, uh, I was overwhelmed. I was exhausted. I was, I was not liking the things that I was doing. And part of that was I was overwhelmed with my work at New City. I was starting a counseling practice from scratch. I was finishing grad school, and my wife and I were wrestling with infertility. And it was one of those seasons of life where I felt just beat up and exhausted all the time. And as I've come to learn, there's a good diagnostic question, which is, how much do I care about the things that I care about? You hear what I'm saying? Like if you find yourself lacking joy and pleasure in the things you typically find joy and pleasure in, that's a red flag. You're probably not in a good place. And I was there. And, and so not only that, but as one of you has taught me, God speaks through intersections. And what was happening was the Lord was intersecting. I was listening to podcasts, reading books as I normally do, but three phrases like leapt off the page or screamed through the podcast at me and caught my attention. But it took three. It wasn't one. I can be stubborn. The first one was this. I was listening to a podcast by a social activist who's talking about how he finished his PhD, jumped out and started doing social activism and was going, 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 going nonstop until he saw his doctor and the doctor looked at him and said, hey, you're on the verge of becoming terminally burnt out. Like, you know, there's, there's some materials that if you, if you bend them like this, there's a point at which they'll bend back. But sometimes if you bend them so much, they'll either break or bend to where you'll never get them back to their normal state. Terminal burnout looks like that. And I was like, oh, all right, maybe I should listen. But I didn't. And then I'm listening to a podcast uh, by this woman who's a, a spiritual director of sorts, and, and she started giving the symptoms, the symptomology of what she was calling being dangerously exhausted. And I sent it to a few people that were close to me. I was like, hey, listen to this. Tell me if you notice any of these things. Terminal burnout, dangerously exhausted. The third one was, uh, I was reading a book called The Holy Hunger, and as I was reading through it, uh, <laughs> He started describing this term, which was pathologically overextended. And I was like, gosh, that just named me. Like, I can extend myself to the point of pathology. And at that point, I had to reconsider the way I'd been living my life. Another word for that is I had to repent. And so I began taking a Sabbath. I began taking one day where I did nothing that I knew to be work on that day. Um, Eugene Peterson was a helpful guide in this way. And, and the way he put it is he says, take one day to pray and to play. And that's what I did. And as I began to do that, I, I actually worked harder. I actually was more productive, more effective, because I knew that no matter how exhausted I might be, I get to slide into the Sabbath day. And so rather than making me uh, less productive to take one out of seven, I found myself more thoughtful, more creative. I had more energy. But as sometimes happens, uh, I pendulum swung into what I would call a form of Sabbath righteousness. And so uh, there was a season, and if you'd talked to me about the Sabbath day in this season, you would have left not enjoying the conversation <laughs> and probably getting a text or a phone call from me apologizing. Because I developed this sense of like, if you don't take a Sabbath, like it's on the list with adultery and murder, what's your deal, right? And I would kind of come off that way. It wasn't like, hey, Jesus wants to invite you to rest. It was like, if you don't Sabbath, right? It was because it's like domineering. 
This wasn't long ago, like literally three weeks ago in my formation circle, we were talking about Sabbath keeping and I had to repent to the guys in my circle and be like, listen, I realize the Holy Ghost just convicted me. It's self-righteousness. That's what's coming through. It was great timing because I'm so glad that I can stand up here today and I can invite you to something beautiful. I can invite you to take it, to receive a gift and it's, I don't have to lord it over you. I don't, I don't, this isn't my righteousness. It was, it isn't. But if in this you're like, hey, I whiffed some of that self-righteousness you were talking about, send me an email, come up and talk to me. I'd be happy, be happy to acknowledge it. But I've talked to some of you in here and I was super encouraged to hear how different people practice Sabbath. And hear me, this is why this was so encouraging to me. It was because I talked to people who were both singled, single and married. I talked to people who had kids and no kids. I talked to people who had large families and small families. I talked to uh, employers and employees. And I got to hear the, the unity of Sabbath keeping, but also the diversity. And so what that means is, what I'm trying to say to you is, listen, you're not the exception. Like your life is not the one life that is impossible to take a Sabbath day. And that takes thoughtfulness, it talk, takes reflection. Um, in our house, we're ongoing, we're in ongoing dialogue about what the Sabbath looks like. What does it look like for us to keep Sabbath? Ongoing. But hear me, the conversation is happening. I'm inviting you to that conversation in your house. And so I want you to experience this because you'll, you'll, you'll see that as you keep Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps you. Like you don't keep the Sabbath day holy. God does that. It makes you holy. That's the invitation that is before us in the text this morning. And so I want to look finally, because I offered you a, a spirituality for your restless hearts. So I want to look at how Sabbath is rest. Now, in order to give you a real world spirituality for restless hearts, I've got to be a good cardiologist. I've got to diagnose your heart real quick. And so hear me, I'm going to say it real simple and then I'm going to work it out for you. Why is it that we, although we believe that we are masters of our time, we find ourselves spending our time on things that we really wouldn't choose, even though we do choose them? Why is it that we find ourselves filling our schedules with commitments and obligations that have more and more, uh, that take up more and more of our time and have less and less to do with what really matters to us? Why do we find ourselves doing this? This is my simple diagnosis. Because we are slaves. Because we are slaves. We're enslaved to our own hearts and their many insecurities. We long to belong, we long to be significant, so we fill our schedules so that we feel like we matter. We are slaves to the perceptions of others. Like busyness is a status symbol in our culture. We might be enslaved to the upbringing that we had where success was the only option. We are slaves to a culture of more, thinking that if we work harder, we can buy more and then finally satisfy that insatiable desire. We are slaves, some of us, to a career, to a profession, to an organization that, like a modern-day pharaoh, will work you till your last drop and squeeze every bit of labor out of you. Because your value doesn't come from the fact that you're a human being, but because you're a human doing. We're enslaved. And into this, 
Jesus says, I have come to set the captives free. I have come that you might have rest. This is why in Matthew 11, as Eugene Peterson translates it, Jesus says this, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's what a good master sounds like. And so Jesus came to release us from our slavery. It took God's spoken word to create all things. It took God's incarnate word to redeem all things. Creation was a breeze compared to redemption. Redemption cost God his very own blood. And so as Jesus comes to set the captives free, he's speaking of you and I. Jesus, like, look at how amazing the Bible is for a second. Just as in creation, God finished his work on Friday, the sixth day. So Jesus on Good Friday completed his cross work and then cried out, it is finished. On Saturday in creation, God rested from his work. And so similarly, Jesus on Holy Saturday rested from his work. Now you might be wondering what I mean by that. Remember what he said to the thief on the cross. Today, that was Friday, today you will be with me in paradise. Translation, join me for Sabbath in Eden. That's what Jesus is saying there. And on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that God said, let there be light. The, the bright dawn of resurrection. On Easter Sunday, Jesus kicked off a new creation, a new world order where we are fundamentally living out of a rest, not fundamentally living out of our work. And so Jesus, the one who sets the captives free, he looks at us and to our insecure hearts, he says, I've given you a new name. Jesus looks at us and to our need for status, he says, I've restored you to the highest status, kings and queens of creation. To our yearning for more, Jesus says, I am rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love that is better than life. And so this morning, I want you to hear that Jesus finished his work so that you can rest in his work. Our catechism says that what faith is, is it's receiving and resting in Jesus alone for our salvation. I'm asking you, I'm inviting you, I'm beckoning you to rest in the finished work of Jesus this morning. This is why Augustine of Hippo said in his maybe most famous statement, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Let's pray. Father, God of all rest, the seventh day lacked the phrase, it was evening and it was morning because your rest never stopped. You've invited us out of our restlessness into your rest. Lord Jesus, you purchased us. You set the captives free from our incessant work 
to be something, to prove something, to earn something. And you've said that you are everything. You've proved everything. You've gained everything for us. So Holy Spirit, draw our hearts to rest, our restless hearts to rest in King Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.